Uncertainty often triggers anxiety and speculation. How do we view and respond to times of uncertainty without panic? The book of Revelation provides a lens to see our present day in light of what is to come. No matter what has happened or will happen, King Jesus always has the last word. That song we just sang, The Battle Belongs to the Lord, I, I think that is the overriding message of the entire book of Revelation. That is the message. That's what I think God wanted his first century followers to know, and that's what he wants us to know today. That when life seems overwhelming, when persecution and problems seem to be escalating, when things are difficult, when evil seems to be advancing in our world, take courage, my friend, because your redemption is near. The battle belongs to the Lord. It's such an important thing for us to remember every day that the battle belongs to the Lord, that we are on His side. You do realize we're in a battle, right? You do know that. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. And then he talks about this, this armor that we have. And he says, our battle, our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood. But against the rulers and authorities and the powers of this world, this dark world. Against those spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. You see, sometimes we get confused and we think that our battle and our battles, because most of us fight many battles, it seems, daily and weekly, those things are against flesh and blood, the things that we can see, the things that we experience, the people we work with, our family situation, money problems, evil in our world, injustice, all of those things. But Paul reminds us that there is something behind those things. There is an evil force at work, and not just this nebulous force, it is Satan, it is the devil. In Revelation, he is called the dragon. Now, when Paul says to stand firm and to put on the armor of God, I don't think he's saying that it's our job to defeat Satan. In fact, we can't do that. If you look at the armor of God, most of it is defensive in nature. Our job is to stand firm and protect ourselves by the power of God and by the word of God against the devil's schemes, against those fiery arrows that Satan likes to shoot at us. But make no mistake, Satan is active in our world. There are rulers and authorities and powers in this dark world. We have been building up in our study of Revelation to this epic battle between good and evil, haven't we? And we know, as we have said all along, who wins. We know who wins this battle. We know who wins the war. It's like recording a game and watching it knowing that your team wins the game you can have that confidence you can relax and just watch the game it's like going into battle with a guarantee that your side is going to win when that's the case you can have confidence not necessarily in yourself but have confidence that things are going to turn out okay I'm on the winning side we will be victorious but the truth is, when we look around us in our world, it doesn't always look like good is winning, does it? It doesn't always feel that way. There's so much evil in our world. 
There's so much hatred and division. There is so much injustice and pain. There is so much suffering, sometimes even by good people, Christ followers, people with genuine faith. And so we wonder, wait a second, I thought we win this thing. It doesn't always look like good is winning. A few years ago, there was a couple down in Corpus Christi, Texas. They were doing some yard work in their backyard, and all of a sudden, they found this diamondback rattlesnake. So what that tells me is, mark Corpus Christi off the list of places that I could possibly live someday. I don't like snakes. I've said that before. I can't stand snakes. Just this past week, you ready for this? Found another snake. This one was inside the house. Yeah. So in other news, we're selling our house. <laughs> it was just a little ribbon snake. Not, you know, not harmful, not even that big, but I do not like snakes. So this couple is doing yard work in the backyard. There's a, a rattlesnake. I mean, this isn't a bull snake. This isn't a ribbon snake. This is a rattlesnake. And it is aggressive. And it has the wife sort of trapped, sort of cornered, and so the husband has to do something. So he grabs a shovel, and he's going to shoo the snake away. And I'm thinking, what, what are you doing? You don't shoo snakes away because they come back. You don't know where they are. You've got to get rid of snakes. So he tried to shoo it away, but this snake was in attack mode. It was aggressive. And so finally he had to do what he should have done in the first place. He used his shovel, and he decapitated the snake. Took its head right off. Now, if you're a member of PETA, I'm sorry, but <laughs> we don't like snakes. Go, read Genesis, okay? We don't like snakes. <laughs> so he, he cuts the head off of the snake. Problem solved. Crisis averted, right? Or so you might think. But a few minutes later, he reached out to grab a stick to get rid of the snake head. And you know what happened? That snakehead lunged at his hand and bit him. And it drained every bit of venom in its pits into his hand. <laughs> now, just in case I was going to give you nightmares before, you know, the only thing worse than being bitten by a rattlesnake is being bitten by the head, the severed head of a rattlesnake. <laughs> Sorry about that. But it, it really illustrates the point well so yeah he the snakehead bites him on the hand drains its venom in it they rush him to the hospital he had to have 26 doses of anti-venom he lost two of his fingers and suffered kidney problems evidently and this is fyi evidently kind of like a chicken when you take their head off the body sometimes runs around well evidently the biting reflex of a snake can stay with it for hours after its head has been cut off. So FYI, you might need to know that someday. Why do I tell you that crazy story? Because I think it is the perfect illustration. You see, make no mistake about it, Satan has been defeated. He has been defeated. That is true. He may have struck the heel of Jesus at Calvary, but Jesus has crushed his head. And yet, we know in our world that Satan can still do damage, can't he? Satan can still harm us. We know that he's been defeated, but he can still influence us. 
can still drag us into a pit of darkness. So at the end of Revelation, John sees these seven scenes. These seven scenes that tell the rest of our story. And by our story, I don't just mean the story we're talking about throughout this series that we see in Revelation. I'm talking about our story, humanity's story. What happens to us? What happens to us who are caught up in this daily battle between good and evil, this pull, this tug, this tension in which we live every day. We get to hear what happens to us. We get to hear the rest of our story. And these scenes, as they unfold in front of John, and he reports them to us, they are almost like we are standing in a gallery, an art gallery, and we're looking at these impressive images, these paintings, And each one of these images is transitioned by the phrase, then I saw, or here I saw. And so he's saying, here I saw this image, and he'll describe it. And then he'll go over here and say, and then I saw this image, and he'll describe it. And these scenes, these images tell us the rest of the story, our story. So look at this image in chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 11. I saw, there's that phrase, I saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so as we're looking at this scene, we're looking at this image in the gallery, what do we see? We see a white horse. Well, who rides white horses? The good guy, right? The good guy in the movie rides the white horse. Well, in history, typically it's the king or the general. He rides the white horse. He is royalty. In fact, the text says that he is wearing many crowns. And his name is what? Faithful and true. So if you don't know who this is yet, let me give you some insight. You go back to Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. In his letter to the church in Laodicea, Jesus identifies himself as what? The faithful and true witness. Chapter 3, verse 14, the faithful and true witness. This is referring to Jesus. And in case you still aren't sure, what is the name that he is wearing? He is wearing the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. There is no mistake that that title is used for Jesus here. That is the very title that the emperors were claiming was their title. That is what they were saying that people should say about them, that you, Caesar, are the king of kings and lord of lords. And here Jesus is, faithful and true, riding the white horse, wearing the crowns, holding the name king of kings and lord of lords. You see what he's doing here. He is elevating himself above all human powers. He is taking his rightful place 
as the one King of kings and Lord of lords. So on that final day, when everything we see around us, all those things that we think are so important, when they are gone, we are going to bow before the true King of kings and Lord of lords. Every one of us, you and me, but not just us, everyone. Every world leader, every politician, every celebrity, every atheist, everybody you work with, everybody in your family, we will bow and acknowledge the true King of kings and Lord of lords. We will do it then. I recommend you do it now. So what is Jesus doing in this scene? As he rides in on this white horse, he is bringing justice and judgment, isn't he? He is bringing justice and judgment, the very thing that those persecuted first century Christians needed and longed for, the very thing we long for. We look around and we see suffering, we see injustice, we see hatred, we see all of these things and we say, God, I thought you were winning. Bring some justice here. Make things that are wrong right. It's the very thing that we want most. And if I am a first century descendant of Israel, if I am a Jewish person, then what I am thinking is, yes, this is our Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. He is going to bring down fire from heaven and destroy the Roman Empire and bring God's people back to their rightful place on earth. He's going to reestablish his kingdom right here among us, his people. (coughs) That's what I'm thinking if I'm a first century Jew. And at first glance, that's what it looks like is going to happen, doesn't it? I mean, look at the the warfare language. Jesus is going to thunder in on, on this white steed like a military general and bring the full force of heaven. He's waging war. His eyes are like blazing fire. The armies of heaven are following him. He has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to strike down the nations. He's going to rule with an iron scepter. The fury and the wrath of God Almighty. It looks like Jesus has come to bring it. Right? And if you keep reading, it continues to describe the annihilation that's going to happen. It says that birds are going to feast on the flesh of those who oppose God. Look at the rest of the story. Evil will try to make a stand. Evil will try to stand and fight. Verse 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs on its behalf. With these signs, he had deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Not going to see that story in the Precious Moments Bible, I don't think. (laughs) It's a very descriptive analysis of the day of the Lord. So what happens to the beast and the false prophet? Remember, a few weeks ago we talked about the dragon, the beast from the sea, and the beast from the earth, which is also maybe the false prophet, as it's referenced here. The the evil trinity, 
And he says right here, the beast and the false prophet, the, the economic, the military power of Rome, this, this push towards emperor worship, worshiping a man as the true king of kings and lord of lords, he says that's going to come to an end. There will be total defeat there. But wait a second. Those things are only flesh and blood, aren't they? Rome is a social and political structure. Temples built for emperor worship are brick and mortar. People who promote a godless culture whose allegiance is to a kingdom other than God's kingdom, who try to draw people away from God, they are merely flesh and blood. And we've already said that our battle is not against what? Flesh and blood. You see, these things are merely dark shadows cast on this life representing something else. Remember those rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world? What about those things? Yeah, we get it. Rome is going to fall. And in fact, Rome did fall, didn't it? But we also know there'll be another Rome. There'll be another Babylon. There always is. What about the force behind those earthly powers? What about Satan? What's going to happen to him? Keep reading. The very next chapter, chapter 20, verse 1. And then I saw, remember our transitional statement? We were describing this image in the gallery, and then I saw another image, and he describes that one. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. So what happens here? Jesus basically cuts the head off the snake, doesn't he? He slays the dragon that is empowering these earthly powers, pulling people away from God. The deceiver has been muzzled. Satan has been bound. That's what Jesus has done. But if you're like me, you read that and say, wait just a second here. Is this permanent? What is this thousand-year thing? What do you mean he'll be set free for a short time? What does that mean? And of course, there's been all kinds of speculation about this thousand years, this millennial. What does that mean? And some people, as you know, have taken it literal, and they've said there is going to be a thousand years where people of God reign and Satan is shackled. And I want to say, have you read Revelation? <laughs> all the word images, all the symbols, all the numbers, and that's the thing you choose to take literal? I'm not sure it's literal. I don't think it is. Other people say, well, it's symbolic like much of Revelation, and it means that when Rome fell, Satan's influence was limited there, and it will be limited until the great day of the Lord when he will be cast away forever. That could be it. Some people say it's just wording. Basically, it means he's going to be putting in a, into a holding cell until he receives his final verdict and sentence to be cast away forever. To be honest, I don't know. I'm not sure what this means, but I know this. Satan will ultimately be defeated. Evils run on earth. It will end. 
He will no longer be a factor. His weapons that he uses against us, deceit, temptation, hatred, anger, lust, all those things, no more. They will be gone. Satan and all of his weapons and all of his minions will be defeated. To quote one of my favorite lines from the movie Gladiator, (laughs) the time for honoring yourself will soon come to an end. That's what's going to happen to Satan. Look at verse 10. In case you aren't sure, look at verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet, remember those things, had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Whatever the thousand years is, whatever it symbolizes, it will ultimately give way to Satan's eternal destiny forever and ever. So we have these images, these scenes of this epic battle, lots of warfare language. But remember, these word pictures throughout Revelation, they are a shared language. To the first century audience, they knew what all of this meant. They knew it wasn't a literal beast coming out of the sea. They knew exactly what that meant. And we're able to kind of piece some of it together, but we're in a different place, a different time. But it is a shared language, just like words. We have words in our language. A word is not a literal thing. It is a symbol of something else that we've agreed upon. When I say the word chair, it's not a literal chair, but you understand and I understand what a chair symbolizes, something that will hold you up if you sit in it. And those symbols in that common language changes from time to time, from place to place. For example, what do you call Coke, Dr. Pepper, Sprite? What do you call those? Soda? Pop? (laughs) Soft drinks? Colas? I I don't know. It kind of depends on where you live in the country, right? As to what you call those things. And you may say one of those words in one part of the country and they may look at you like, what are you talking about? But you say that same word in another part and they know exactly what you're talking about. You see, these word pictures here, these symbols, these images, the first century readers, they were probably listeners, they understood. They had this common language. In fact, many of these images were taken from the Old Testament throughout Revelation, even here in chapter 19. You look back at Isaiah chapter 11. You look back at Isaiah chapter 63, Psalm 2. Many of those images are being borrowed to communicate an important message. You see, all of this warfare language, I think there's something hidden in there for us. There's a little detail that is so important that we might just read over and miss. Look back at verse 13 of chapter 19. Jesus on this white horse is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. Did you catch that the first time? This robe dipped in blood. Kings don't ride white horses and have blood on them. Certainly not before the battle. That doesn't make any sense, does it? So whose blood is this on Jesus? Is it the blood of the nations? Is it the blood of the martyrs? You know whose blood it is. It's his blood. It's the blood of the lamb. You see, as much as a part of what's 
of us wants to, to read this story and all this warfare language and get excited and say, yeah, that's the Messiah we've been waiting on. He's going to bring the thunder. This isn't a story about Jesus winning through violence and vengeance and aggression. The very things, by the way, that the enemy values and uses. This is a story about victory through sacrifice. That's what this is. And that is God's nature. And that is the nature of Jesus. It's not surprising, is it? It's not surprising that victory would come through sacrifice. Because Jesus said, to be great, you have to be a servant. To be first, you have to be last. That true greatness isn't found in power and influence and money and all those things the world values. True greatness is found in humbling yourself. And Jesus didn't just teach that, he demonstrated it. He emptied himself, becoming nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. In his own words, Mark 10, 45, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. It looks like the most improbable ways of winning a war. Your own death, your own blood, is the weapon that you choose to win this war? Exactly. God can do that. If God can bring down the mighty walls of Jericho using a marching band and some horns, he can do that. If he can slay the Philistine giant with a sling and a stone in the hands of a young shepherd, he can do this. You see, that is the nature of the kingdom of God. So don't be surprised. But do take notice. Satan is defeated through sacrifice. Victory comes by the blood of the Lamb. Evil does not and will not win. Please understand that the evil you see around you, it is short-lived. One day, the dragon, Satan, will be cast away forever and ever. His influence will be gone. And what is Satan's most effective weapon? What is the one thing we fear most? Death, isn't it? We fear it, we grieve it, we avoid it. Satan knows how to use death. But what's going to happen even to Satan's greatest weapon? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in what? In victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, even Satan's greatest weapon, death, will not defeat us. Jesus has overcome this world and he has overcome death. There is an empty tomb halfway around the globe right now that bears witness to this fact. Jesus conquered death. 
And those who are with Jesus will also conquer death. So we have nothing to fear. We know who wins. In 2004, the Summer Olympics in Athens, Greece, a Brazilian long-distance runner named Vanderlei de Lima surprised everyone when at the 13-mile mark he took the lead. That was unexpected. And he was going strong. He had four miles left in the race, and that's when it happened. This guy from the crowd, wearing an Irish kilt and green knee socks and a green beret, rushed out onto the course of the race and assaulted Delima. And he pushed him into the crowd. It was the most bizarre-looking thing. Finally, some onlookers and security came, and they managed to... to apprehend the guy and Delima got back on the course and began to run the race again. A later investigation showed that this man was, uh, was, was a former Irish priest who was just looking for attention. Well, you know it, a man of the cloth looking for attention. <laughs> in fact, he had just served two years in jail for standing in the middle of a race car a race, of a car race. When cars were dodging him, getting around him, he got in trouble for that. A guy looking for attention. But that's not the story. The story is, how did this impact Delima? As I said, he kept running the race, and he was ahead. He only had four miles left, but at the two-mile mark, with only two miles left to go, he was passed. Not just once, but twice. And he ended up getting third in the race. He got the bronze medal. How unfortunate for him. Reporters asked him afterwards about the incident. He said, I was completely surprised. I didn't expect that. I was focused and concentrated on my race, and I had my rhythm, and that threw everything off. Threw me completely out of rhythm. I never could get it back as I finished the race. You know that as you run the race... As you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, as you keep running, you know Satan is going to barge in. He's going to attack you. He's going to assault you. He's going to try to shove you off course, get you off the path. You know it. You see it. You experience it. And I would just say to you what Paul said. Don't let anything move you. Don't let anything move you because your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Keep running your race. And it doesn't even matter what place you get. It doesn't matter what order you finish. As long as you run with Jesus, as long as you finish with him, because he is the true, the only King of kings and Lord of lords. And one day, evil will be gone. And next week, as we conclude our series, we're going to talk about the new heaven and the new earth, the great news of the end of your Bible. So keep running. Let nothing move you. Satan's going to come after you. Be ready. Be ready for him. And keep running with Jesus. If we can help you today, we want to do that. In just a minute, a couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor. It's a room right behind me. You can exit out of the doors into the hallway, go there. They're going to pray, so they'd love to pray over you. 
or you can come down to the front and we'll pray for you this morning. Maybe today you're ready to make that decision to say, I'm tired of living for myself. I believe Jesus came and he lived here and he died for me and he was resurrected from that grave. He conquered death and I want to live an abundant life and conquer death in him. And you're ready to proclaim to the world that you believe Jesus is the son of God. And you're ready to be baptized into Christ, to be clothed with Christ, to live for Christ, to run that race with him. We'd be happy to celebrate with you this morning. If there's something we can do, we invite you to come as we stand and sing. Take my life and let it be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee Take my 